you start the recording okay i'm uh, starting the session okay so uh yesterday we were looking at a huge aspect of our salvation and that is called union with christ our union with christ in fact all of our salvation right from eternity past to our glorification in the future and even further into eternity so from eternity past to eternity future if all of us has to be summed up in one statement all of it can be summed up under one heading called union with christ union with christ and the new testament uh, presents that very clearly now we yesterday talked about four perspectives of this union with christ or four perspectives of salvation let me just review that for those of you uh, who missed it and for those who attended uh, it'll be a refreshing of your memory uh, so please listen to this very carefully we talked about the eternal aspect which means in the eternity past god chose us in him from before the foundation of the world so there is once again the aspect of union with christ seen even in what god did for us objectively in eternity past which is he chose us in him ephesians 1:4 he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world so in the thought of god he saw us as belonging to christ as he chose us in eternity past so he chose us in him the second thing we talked about was the historical aspect where christ jesus to accomplish that redemption that god had planned in eternity past and purposed in eternity past he came down into this world in the form of man lived a perfect life and acquired righteousness because he perfectly kept the law and he died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he is right now seated at the right hand of god and we are waiting his return and so in god's scheme of things in god's reckoning of things or in god's thoughts so to speak he sees him as our representative and all of us who are believers in christ are participants in all of the experiences of christ because he's our representative god sees us as though we were in him when he did all those works so christ went on to perfectly fulfill the law and he acquired that perfect righteousness that comes by fulfilling the law and therefore god sees that righteousness as though we perfectly kept the law and it is our righteousness he sees his death as our death we died with him we were buried with him we were raised with him we have ascended with him and we are seated with him in the heavenly heavenly realms in christ in glory so one is the eternal aspect and the second one is the historical aspect where jesus as our representative went through certain experiences like death burial resurrection ascension uh, and being seated at the right hand of god which is being glorified and god sees us in him and god sees us as being participants 
in, in all of his experiences. That is the historical aspects of it. There's a present aspect of it where he actually brings those aspects of salvation into our very life. So you have the gospel call coming in and you have repentance from sin. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are regenerated. You are justified. You're being sanctified. You're adopted into the family of God. All these things are the present aspects of salvation where it is actually a reality. It is not just God. It is not just happening in God's thoughts objectively, but it is a subjective experience of every individual who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a present aspect of it. And then there is the eschatological aspect of it or the future aspect of it, where one day at his return, we will have the fullness of our salvation. We will be saved is the language that the New Testament uses. And that is our glorification, where we will have glorified bodies. So these are the four aspects, four perspectives of salvation. And all of these can be presented under one heading called union with Christ. Union with Christ. So in, the, in eternity past, he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. And then in the historical past, he was our representative. And in God's thoughts, we have become participants in all the experiences of Christ himself. And then in the present time, he brings those aspects of salvation into our very life when we repent of our sin and place our faith in him, in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have the eschatological aspects of it, where in the future, we will be saved and we will experience the fullness of our salvation. And therefore, the first two, the eternal aspect and the historical aspect can be called the positional aspect of salvation. The present and the eschatological aspect uh, aspects are the experiential aspects of salvation. Once again, the eternal and the historical are objective things that God has done for us. The present and the eschatological things are subjective things, what God is doing in us, in our lives, and also will do to accomplish the fullness of uh, salvation for us in our lives. So these are the four perspectives of salvation. I hope it's very clear now. Uh, I'll just pause for a moment to take any questions on this, and then I'll move forward. Nevandana uh, Rojit here. Yes, yes. Uh, go on. So, so in the eternal past, uh, you say that he chose us in him. Mm -hmm. So uh, he knew that we would be separated and then again joined back. Uh, can you repeat the last statement you were breaking up? Uh, he knew that what? Uh, we would uh, we would sin and we would be separated and then join back like how Adam sinned. So if you would have chosen us in him. Okay. Uh -huh. So so the point there, the point there when the Bible says he chose us in him is that when God actually chose a set of individuals for salvation. Okay. It's called, uh, it's called election. We'll talk about that in just a couple of slides. When God chose us in eternity past, he actually chose us and saw us as belonging to him already. So in the thought of God, in the mind of God, as he was choosing certain individuals, 
he could not choose them apart from understanding in his mind that they actually belong to Christ. So it, it is just using very plain language to understand something very, very, con, uh, very, very, um, very, very tough, uh, very, very complex. So what I'm saying here is that when the Bible says he chose us in him, it means that God has ordained that certain people have been elected to salvation in Christ Jesus. That is the point. All right, I get it now. Thanks. Even I do have a question. In uh, this thing, right? yeah. Yes. See, but God knew that we were going to sin, right? He, it's not, all of this was a part of him knowing. He knew that man is going to fall and yes. everything. So everything is in his control, right? Uh -huh. So, yeah. So he knew that, yeah, this is going to happen and he had chosen. Yeah. Right? Okay. okay. Just, just, just getting that clarified. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't just know everything. Uh, if he knows something, it means he's ordained that thing. Which means uh, there is nothing in the knowledge of God uh, in terms of his decree that doesn't come to be. As in, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so the thing is, uh, God has purposed salvation for mankind even before he created man. Mm -hmm. Get the point? Mm -hmm. Which means yes. that uh, he, which means that he's ordained that he's going to create yeah. man, yeah. and man is going to fall, and then mm -hmm. he needs to be saved. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Driven to one, one more question on that. It's a... Abhi, uh, you're very low in your volume. I don't Can want to misunderstand you, you, so come closer to the computer. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Better. Yeah. Uh, so on that point itself, which you were mentioning, just one more point I wanted to ask was. Uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, people, as I mean, are kind are chosen, correct, mm -hmm. by God. Right. right. Uh, and so, what about people before Christ as such came about? Were they chosen as well, or what's this? Yes, yes. The elect are, are also in the Old Testament. That's true. But they only mentioned a few of them, right? I mean, like hardly a few number, which you can talk about, like. Uh, uh, the prophets and then there's probably david or somebody like that that's about it that you can understand from the bible uh, not really that is that is what is mentioned yeah. to us but uh, th there would be a significant number of people who would have been saved we are just given the stories of certain people who are prototypical or in one sense representatives of the culture in which they lived for example you know uh, in the book of romans chapter 4 paul talks about abraham as being justified by faith or, or as having been justified by faith. Uh, so Paul uh, is taking Abraham from the Old Testament as a representative of everybody who's been saved or justified by faith, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So in that sense, the Bible presents certain individuals as representatives of uh, their culture, of the way in which they lived, of the way in which they turned from their own culture, and they turn to God and all of that. That doesn't mean only those individuals were saved. We are not told about so many other people who were saved. For example, you know, in, in the nation of Israel, you know, uh, they were Ru there was uh, Ruth, there was Boaz, and it says Boaz was a righteous man. Uh, but it does not mean that he was the only righteous man at that time uh, in the nation of Israel. So when you look at the entire uh, Old Testament, uh, you have this concept of the remnant that the Bible talks about. 
those people in the nation of Israel, the true Israel, who are justified by faith, who are the elect of God. We'll, we'll come to that when we come uh, a little further uh, in our study. Anything else? What about people nowadays as we try to reach out to many? I mean, um, so technically, if they're not elect, then what is the purpose? Okay, of I think I think we are getting ahead of ourselves. We'll just oh, yeah? uh, okay. we'll just first talk about what election is, and then uh, most of the questions will be answered in the explanation itself, and then you can ask questions. Okay, can we move forward? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Right, okay. Now, right away, we'll move to something called uh, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. Now, this is a very controversial topic because there are several understandings of it and even misunderstandings of it. There is something called the Arminian position. We are not getting into that. We are just looking at what the Bible is saying. Then there's something called the Calvinistic position. And there's also something called a Molinistic position. It's, uh, it talks about God's middle knowledge and all of that. I'm not getting into various positions here. I'm just going to show you directly what the Bible is teaching and what I believe in as well that the Bible teaches. So when we look at the entire aspects of salvation, if you have to build a chronology to what happens when in terms of the order of salvation, I think we will have to begin with the concept of election. Why? We saw the, uh, the eternal aspect, remember? We saw the eternal aspect where God in eternity past chose certain individuals in him or chose certain individuals uh, by seeing as though they belong to Christ. Okay, so uh, we will look at the first thing called the doctrine of election. I will first give you a few verses from the Bible and then we will try to explain and uh, carve out a definition uh, looking at some of the scriptural uh, concepts that are presented here. All right. Look at uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 48. Now, Paul and Barnabas were preaching to the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch. And uh, here is what Luke says when they actually preached the gospel in Pisidian Antioch to Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And the emphasis here is mine. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, it is significant here that Luke mentions the fact of election or the doctrine of election almost in passing. It's almost like for him, it's a normal occurrence whenever the gospel is preached. He doesn't highlight it. I have emphasized it for our understanding. But Luke almost just uh, mentions that in passing as if it is a doctrine that's taken for granted every time the gospel is preached. So the question here is, when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, how many people believed? The answer is in blue here. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What Paul and what, what Luke is saying here is that 
Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to a lot of Gentiles who were gathered there in Pisidian Antioch. However, only those who are the elect of God, only those who are appointed to eternal life, believed. Now hold the thought. Uh, we will move to a very famous passage in the book of Romans where Paul talks about the exact same concept and he uh, explains it to us a little bit here. And we know very famous words and every, every Christian quotes this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now here, please. Why? The reason is for those him, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he, whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A very heavy verse, but uh, we need to understand this. This is a very, very beautiful concept. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that there are some people that God foreknew. God foreknew in eternity past. And by the way, I will explain what is foreknowledge uh, in a couple of slides. But just hold, hold the thought about our questions about what foreknowledge is. But just go with the flow in, in uh, what the verse is saying here right now. God is saying that there are certain people that he foreknew. Now here, notice just as a, just as a harbinger to what we're going to say later on, that it is some people that he foreknew, okay? Those whom he foreknew. So those people that God foreknew, he also predestined. Let's just loosely say elected. He also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son. So there are certain people that God foreknew, he had foreknowledge of, whom he elected, and elected with a purpose of confirming them to the image of his son, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he do with those, those people? Those people he called, look at the last uh, blue sentence, he called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Notice what the verse is saying here, that all that he called, he justified. And all that he justified, he also glorified. This is called the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. We'll talk a little more about that in the following slides. But for the moment, just understand that God has selected or chosen certain people in eternity past, specific individuals in eternity past who would be saved or whom he purposed to save. Romans 9 uh, in the following chapter. Paul, when he is discussing about God's choosing Jacob and not Esau, Paul goes on to very clearly explain that it is not because of anything that Jacob or Esau had done in their lives. The reason is they had not yet been born. But why is God choosing Jacob and not Esau or electing Jacob and not Esau? It is because God's purpose of election might continue. Now notice what it's saying here. Though they were not born yet, that is Jacob and Esau, they were not born yet, and had done nothing either good or bad in order or for the purpose 
that God's purpose of election might continue or might be true, and not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is very clear. Paul, in this, in this uh, chapter, in chapter 9, is very clearly mentioning the doctrine of election. And he's saying that this is not based on works, just in case you misunderstand it. God does not look into the future and see this guy is doing good and this guy is doing bad. And therefore, let me just elect the person who's good. It is not based on works because they were not yet born. Jacob and Esau were not yet born when God actually elected them. So the point here is that God's purpose of election might continue. It is all based on God's sovereign purposes. It is all based on God's grace. He in his grace has chosen a people for himself, certain individuals for himself, and he has purpose to save them in Christ Jesus. Again, in the following chapters, Romans 11, this is talking about Israel. What then? Israel failed to, apply, uh, failed to obtain what it was seeking. And here is the concept. He says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. What is Paul saying here? Paul here is saying that although the nation of Israel exists as God's chosen nation, within Israel, there are two distinct groups. One is called the elect, who obtained salvation in Paul's language because they sought it. And the rest were not the elect and they were simply hardened. So from all these verses, we see that there is a certain set of people, certain group of people that includes you and I in God's grace. And that's why we have been saved. That God has selected or chosen in eternity past and his purpose to save those individuals in Christ. And that's why we have this language in Ephesians 1.4, where Paul very lucidly uses the language of us being chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. That's beautiful language. So the point is, um, let's not talk of salvation as though it begins with us. Let's not talk of gospel preaching as though we are fully in control of it. No, our responsibility is only to present the gospel as clearly and as lucidly with the right content as possible. It is God's responsibility in his time to draw and call the elect to himself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So from now on, as we understand this concept, or as we have this concept clarified in our minds, let's never talk in a way as though salvation completely belonged to man or salvation rested in man's control. No, it doesn't. It is God who has purpose to save a people for himself. And in time, he is saving that people that he wanted to save or that he has chosen in eternity past in him. That is the doctrine of election. We'll continue that because the New Testament is inundated with verses like that. I just, I just didn't want to uh, stop with one slide of verses. I'll give you a little more 
and then we'll uh, get to uh, some explanation of the doctrine of election. So Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, and I cannot help but bring this up again and again, a very famous uh, passage on the doctrine of election. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, when did he choose us? He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, or he has accepted us in the beloved. So there are two words here. He chose us in him and in love he predestined us. Both of them, I'll talk about what predestination is uh, in a little while. But for the moment, just understand that he has elected us from before the foundation of the world. One of my favorite verses, First Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. Or four and five. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does Paul know that he has chosen the brothers in the church at Thessalonica? Paul gives the reason. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What Paul is saying is this. The reason I know that God has chosen you is because when we actually preach the gospel, it came in power and in Holy Spirit with full conviction and it produced your conversion. And because you accepted the gospel and you came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, I know for sure you are chosen by God. In other words, what Paul is saying here is this, that you cannot come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ when the gospel is preached to you if you're not chosen by God. Or if somebody comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because, uh, or if somebody comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because he has been chosen from before the foundation of the world. So salvation belongs to the Lord. Once again, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's why the New Testament calls Jesus the author of our salvation, the author and the founder of our salvation. He chose us in him from before the foundation of the world. And all he chose, he called, and all he called, he justified as well. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now notice, it is not based on our faith. It is not based on uh, anything that is inherent in us, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began, before ages began. He gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began. Isn't that a beautiful concept? Um, it is a concept that should give us comfort that salvation does not completely rest in me or salvation is not dependent fully on me, but salvation is dependent on God who chose me and who chose a certain people from before the foundation of the world and his purpose to save them and he will draw them to himself in time through the preaching of the gospel. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, 
Asia and uh, Bithynia. So he is talking about the elect once again. There is a concept of the elect of God. All right. Okay. So I think these many verses are enough to just talk about the fact that the New Testament is inundated with the concept. And um, there's a proliferation of verses to talk about the fact that God has chosen a certain group of people for himself and his purpose, that is an eternity past, and his purpose to save them in Christ Jesus through the preaching of the gospel in time. Let's define the doctrine of election. Election is God's choice of certain individuals before creation, and it is for salvation. The choice is not on the basis of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of a sovereign good pleasure. Let me read that again. Election is God's choice of certain individuals before creation, before ages began, before the foundation of the world. All of that is New Testament language. And he chose those individuals for salvation. And this choice is not on the basis of any foreseen merit in them or any foreseen faith in them or any foreseen good or credentials in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Isn't that an amazing concept? the New Testament presents to us, that you and I have been chosen from before the foundation of the world in him. And by the way, not on the basis of any foreseen faith in us, not on the basis of any merit in us, not on the basis of anything good in us, but because of his sovereign good pleasure. That tells us that our salvation is secure because it doesn't rest in us. It rests in God. It is in God's control. It is under God's sovereignty. He chose us. He purposed to save us. He has saved us. He will save us to the fullness of salvation in the glorification. What is the concept of predestination? Now, we just talked about election. Predestination is a much bigger concept. Predestination involves two different things for two different sets of people. Predestination for believers is electing believers to salvation and with a purpose. So that's why whenever you have the term predestination in the New Testament, there is always a purpose statement right next to it. Predestined to salvation, predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, predestined to, be, to adoption as sons, so such language is used. But predestination is a much larger concept than election because election is part of predestination or a subset of predestination. God has predestined certain people to become believers later in him. And that is called election. On the other hand, God has predestined certain people, and I want to carefully use the language, for reprobation, that is unbelievers, the non-elect, which means... It does not mean that God has elected them to go to hell. No, that is not the point. But there is a certain group of people that God has selected for salvation. That is election. That is the believers. The other set of people, the non-elect, God passes over them. God just passes over them and left to themselves, they will not choose Christ and 
ultimately they will be judged because of the choice that they made. So it is not God actively uh, selecting people to go to hell, but rather the New Testament uses passive language where God passes over certain individuals, the non-elect, and those people do not choose Christ and God ultimately, because of their rejection of Christ, punishes them or judges them unto eternity. So predestination is a larger concept than election. It involves two things. It involves the election of believers to salvation. It also involves the passing over of the non-elect so that they'll be judged at the end of the world. And that is called reprobation. Okay. We will come to this term called foreknowledge. Is election based on foreknowledge? Now, what is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is uh, a prior knowledge of something. For prior knowledge of something or someone. So the Greek word used here is the word prognosko. Pro, before, or for, gnosko, knowledge. Um, now, if you go back to the verse that we started with, uh, look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son. Now listen to me very carefully, please. Some people say, which is the Arminians in their theology, they teach that Paul here is talking about foreknowledge of the faith of people based on which God elects people. Now, let me say that again, or let me explain that. What they say is, God looks into the future and looks at the lives of people. And when the gospel is presented to them, whoever would positively respond to the gospel based on their faith, only those people would God select or elect before the foundation of the world. So in their concept, that is Arminian theology, Election is based on foreknowledge of the faith of the individual. Now think about it for a moment. If election is based on the faith or foreknowledge of the faith of an individual, doesn't that completely rest salvation in man? Because it is based on the faith of certain individual that God is actually electing that individual. So salvation there rests in man. Such a concept is the beginning of salvation where man takes the precedence or man takes the higher place than God controlling it fully or salvation completely belonging to God. But notice this verse here. Look at the verse very clearly. For whom he foreknew. He is talking about persons and not facts in the lives of people. Whom he foreknew. Which means those individuals that he foreknew. Now what is foreknowing somebody? You need to understand this clearly. That 
Well, let, let me actually explain now what is this foreknowledge, and then we'll come to the concept of it. Throughout the Bible, the word knowledge is used of intimate knowledge in a lot of contexts, or even love in certain contexts. For example, um, when it talks about um, Adam and Eve coming together in a sexual relationship, the Bible uses the phrase, Adam knew Eve, or Isaac knew Rebecca. In the sense, it is talking about an intimacy of the intimacy of knowledge or intimacy of love between the two people. So the point here is when Paul says that those whom he foreknew, he is talking about those people that God was in love with in a saving way. And God actually um, knew those people in a very intimate relational way. So what Paul here is saying is that God looked into the future and he thought of those people, certain people in a saving relation to him or in a saving relation to himself. He loved them in a saving relation to himself. He knew them. He had intimate knowledge of them in a saving relation to himself. So there are certain individuals that he foreknew. And what did he do with those people? He predestined those people. To be what? I said predestined always has a purpose statement attached to it. Predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son, which means he has elected them for the fullness of salvation. And notice what he's saying next. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he, he also glorified. Now notice, it's all God doing it. He foreknew people, which means he had intimate knowledge, relational knowledge of certain people that he wanted to save. He foreloved them as well in one sense. And he also predestined them. And he called them. He justified them and he glorified them. It's all God's work. Salvation, once again, belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, before we move further, how do we see this concept of the doctrine of election? I know it's a tough concept, but the Bible presents the concept of the doctrine of election as a matter of comfort to believers, not something where you need to panic about. Uh, again, Romans 8.28, Paul assures the Romans, uh, the Roman church that in everything God works for, for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So God's work of predestination or election is a reason why we can be assured of the fact that we will be saved. It's a matter of comfort for believers that we don't have to do any gymnastics. We don't have to do uh, any kind of a mere human effort, but we can preach the gospel and we can rest in the fact that those whom he has chosen, whom he has predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son, he will draw them to himself because 
those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so uh, the New Testament writers present the doctrine of election as a matter of comfort for us. It is a matter of comfort for us. Um, if God has always acted for our good, he will also act for our good in the future as well. Second thing, it is something for which we need to praise God as well. The doctrine of election is something for which we need to praise God. If you look at uh, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, Paul says, uh, He predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And he repeats that language in verse 12 as well. So it is to the praise of his glorious grace that we have been elected. The doctrine of election is a matter for which we need to praise God. Paul also tells the church, uh, Christians at Thessalonica, he says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 2 and 4, we give thanks to you, we, do, we give thanks to God always for you all, for we know brethren beloved by God that he has chosen you. It is a matter of giving thanks to God. And thirdly, we need to be encouraged in our evangelism because of the doctrine of salvation. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, two, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. Now he knows that God has chosen certain people to be saved, and he sees this as an encouragement to preach the gospel, even if it means enduring great suffering. So election is Paul's guarantee that when he preaches the gospel, people will be saved and he will draw the elect to himself. You know, it's, it's like uh, somebody who has invited us to fishing and saying, I guarantee that you'll catch some fish today and, and giving us uh, uh, a net in hand. So uh, it, is just, it is just a vague parallel, but just for our understanding. So this is the doctrine of election. Um, any questions on this, please, before we move forward? Uh, Hello? Yes, Abhijit. Hey, hi. Uh, so, uh... As I was asking earlier, what about uh, the ones that were, uh, that are, okay, two questions. Uh, what about the ones that are chosen? Could they respond to the doctrine or uh, respond to this differently as such? Respond uh, to what, what differently? As in respond to the gospel differently, saying that, yeah, I don't care about this as such. Yeah, uh, there are times when people uh, do reject the gospel, but yeah. there will be a point in their life when God will effectually call them and they will place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. All those who are elect will be saved. Even though they are, uh, they are uh, you know, chosen by God, they could reject the gospel. Was there any time in your life you rejected the gospel when it was presented to you before you came to faith? Uh, yeah, there were yeah. situations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay and so then uh, next comes the question of um, why would i need uh, you know uh, why would i need how do i phrase this uh, why would i need to preach the gospel to somebody else who is not elected as well how do you know who's elected and who's not 
good question. Uh, <laughs> but several uh, reasons. Number one, we are called to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and it is a commandment given by God, and therefore we obey the command and we preach the gospel. Secondly, God does not draw the elect to Himself in spite of the gospel, but through the means of the preaching of the gospel. So the gospel is the means by which He draws His elect to Himself. Number three. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, if I could lift the shirt of somebody and see his back and see the letter E on the backs of the elect, only then would I preach the gospel only to the elect. Otherwise, I'd preach the gospel to everybody. So he's being sarcastic, right? Sorry? He's being sarcastic, right? <laughs> Obviously. The point there is there's no E written on the backs of the elect so that we could only preach the gospel to them. And if, it's there, if the E is there, then why, why preach? If E is there also, we need to preach only to them because it is only through the gospel that he draws the elect to himself. Devant, <laughs> uh, I do have a question. If, um, this is Sheetal? Sheetal, yeah. Okay. So now, like for instance, my own family, right? Um, can you speak up please, Sheetal? Um, can you hear me now? Yes, better. I'm saying my own family, I don't mm -hmm. know if they are also chosen, correct? And, Sorry, your own I don't family, know you don't know? If they're chosen, Yeah. if they are elect, a part of the elect. Mm -hmm. so now, then I don't know why, but in the recent past, I've been saying, saying Lord, if, if in case they're not uh, elect, I'm praying, I'm asking you to consider uh, them to be. You get what I'm saying? Okay, uh, so Sheetal, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. The thing is, uh, we don't have to think about uh, whether they are part of the elect or not when we actually pray about somebody or share the gospel with somebody. So all we are told in the New Testament is that we need to preach the gospel to everybody. And we, we persuade them, we strive with them, we do everything that is humanly possible uh, so that they understand the gospel and also, we try to present it to them as many times as we can that is possible to us. Uh, so, the point is, mm -hmm. so the point is that um, there are several verses in the New Testament that say that whoever comes to him, him I will by no wise cast away. Okay, uh, things like that. So we are also given the responsibility of trusting in the gospel and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is just a prayer. It, so don't think about the doctrine of election and all of that. It is a matter of comfort for believers, to be sure. But mm. when we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel, trusting in God that he would save the people that he wants to save. Right? And we pray that everybody that we preach the gospel to will be saved. Okay. So you're saying, but is it then, I don't know, then I guess there's no point of me even praying that prayer, right? No, uh, yeah, no I need. wouldn't. So I would, I would say don't pray about election and all of that. that okay. Uh, just okay. pray that, just pray that, Lord, when I present the gospel to my family, mm -hmm. would you please open their hearts and help them yeah. receive the gospel? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Raven. Yeah. Uh, Raven? Uh, yeah. 
Caleb here. Yes, Caleb. Uh, okay, so uh, okay, so basically, one might argue that if um, God has anyway elected and he mm-hmm. uh, he is going to bring them unto Himself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even if I don't preach, they are anyway going to be saved. How are they going to be saved? Huh? How? No, because they are the elect. No, so that is not the way the New Testament presents it. This is just our mere human logic. Okay. Uh, let me. Okay. Let me just uh, lay this out for you. God achieves His ends that He has ordained through a means always. Okay. I'll give you an example. Um, if you're praying for fifty rupees and you don't have it. And that's why you're praying for it. God, more often than not, does not drop that 50 rupees from heaven to fall directly into your wallet. He rather, to accomplish that end, uses means like he would move the heart of Sujay to give you 50 rupees. Or he would move the heart of your dad to come and put that 50 rupees in your wallet. So the end is to answer your prayer to get that 50 rupees in your wallet. But God uses means as well. So God uses means to accomplish the ends that he has ordained. So he has purpose to save a people for himself. He has glorified them. But he is going to use a means, that is the preaching of the gospel, to accomplish that. And that's why there are clear commandments for us to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what we call as a great commission by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is precisely because God is going to save certain people and our work in the Lord is not going to be in vain with that guarantee that when we preach the gospel that the Lord is going to draw his people to himself, we go with confidence and we preach the gospel. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. Anything else about this? Starlet? He's not yet, Raven. Oh, okay. Joanna, anything? No. Any questions? Nothing. Okay. Raven. Um, yes, uh, Ruby, right? So, yeah. In okay. this uh, case, somehow you tend to feel that uh, is God being unfair to the, you know, to the unelected, right? Right. Uh, uh, right. So, Ruby, uh, it. It sounds like that, and it seems like that to our modern minds who always look for fairness in everything. Um, now, here is a point, Ruby. If there are 10 people, okay? If there are 10 people, all of them are murderers. I'm just giving you a, an example for, for us to understand as a parallel to what the New Testament concept is. If there are 10 people and all 10 of them are murderers and all of them deserve to die. But the judge who needs to uh, pronounce the verdict that they all deserve to die because of his goodness and the sovereign power that he has chose out of the goodness of his heart five people that he was going to save from death. Now, my question to you is, uh, do you think any of them deserved to live? No. No. 
so the judge is not doing injustice to the remaining five people. He is sending them to the logical conclusions of their sin, which is they deserve to die. But actually, he is giving the other set of five people what they don't deserve. And for which they need to be grateful to the judge for the rest of their lives. So if God had to be fair to everyone, we all would go to hell. None of us would be sitting here. That's being fair. Because we all deserve to die. We're all dead in transgressions and sins. But God in his mercy, and that's the same, that's the same passage talking about it. But God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions and sins, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in glory. Isn't that an amazing concept? And that's why we come to God and we praise him every day. We especially come corporately Sunday after Sunday and we praise him because when we didn't deserve it, he chose us in his grace. I guess it's really hard to, like, you know, when you see someone and you feel like, you know, they, they're so close to the Lord, but yet so far. And sorry, then sorry. Think, I'm just saying, it's like sometimes when you meet some people in mm -hmm. your day-to-day -day lives mm -hmm. who live really godly lives without even knowing the Lord. Yeah. Right? Sheetal, and to, Sheetal, there to is a promise. Out. There is yeah. a promise in the New Testament and it is, it is something that is pervasive throughout the Bible that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. So when I talk to people and when you talk to people, I want you to think of them this way, that if they genuinely call out to the Lord, the Lord will save you. Okay. 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 And, yeah. and the New Testament, the New Testament does not, Put the responsibility of God for somebody not choosing Christ. It always puts the accountability and the responsibility on the individual and says, right. because he rejected Christ, he is going to hell. So the point is, uh, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that, oh, somebody was not saved because he's not non-elect. On the other hand, it is positively said that somebody was saved because they're elect. Right. But Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that somebody was not saved because he's non-elect, but it does say somebody was not saved because he mm. rejected God mm. who gave him that offer. It's a genuine offer. I, I think that's very comforting to know. Uh, it is absolutely comforting. Like, it is absolutely yeah. comforting. So from now on, Sheetal, go and preach the gospel with confidence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that it is not in us. It is not in our oratory skills. Uh, I, would, I would add, it is not merely in our oratory skills. It is not True. merely in what we say or the illustrations that we give. All those do have a place, but ultimately God, through the message that we preach, will bring his elect to himself. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Ravens, but in, uh, when we talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, yeah. so is there a role of God hardening the hearts of certain people? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Romans chapter 9 deals with that. Um, in Exodus, uh, when you go to the book of Exodus, it repeatedly speaks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, so here is the explanation for it. And listen to this very carefully, please. We are all dead in transgressions and sins. Right? That's what the Bible says. Which means that you and I, even when we were unbelievers, um, 
and all the unbelievers do have the potential to do what they want to do in terms of sin. Yes? Ruby, uh, are you there? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. So every unbeliever, because the unbeliever is dead in transgressions and sins, they have the potential. I'm not saying they do what they want to do always, but I'm saying they have the potential to be an Osama bin Laden or to be a Hitler because we are dead in transgressions and sins and there is a potential in the human heart to be what you want to be in your sin. But not every unbeliever is as sinful as he can be. And what is the reason? The reason is the common grace, the general grace of God, as we call it. Uh, we didn't get into the concept here. It is called the common grace where the spirit of God restrains even an unbeliever to the degree of sin that he is allowed him to do. That's all. Otherwise, everybody would be as sinful as he can be and this world will be an unlivable place. So even unbelievers are restrained in their sin, although they are dead in transgressions and sins. Now, here's what it is. When God takes away that restraint, the condition of the human heart is as worse as possible in the sense that the human heart will live up to its potential and work its way to its potential. So the lifting of those guards or those garrisons that God has put to allow the human heart to go to its logical conclusions or to its potential is what is called hardening. So is God it similar is not... to Romans 1? Is it similar to Romans 1 where God gives away people to yeah, their God last... gives them over. That's right. It's, it's a similar concept. Yes. God gives them over. That's right. Uh, it's thrice over said there. So, uh, so Ruby, the point is that Pharaoh's heart was already dead in transgressions and sins, but God in his common grace was not allowing him to be as sinful as he could be. But at that point, in his own sovereign purposes, and Paul talks about that in Romans 9, for his own glory, he lifted those restraints away and left to himself Pharaoh heart was hardened. So in that sense, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It is, it is not God going and uh, you know, instigating him to do evil. That is, not, uh, that is a contradiction in the nature of God. Um, it is not God, uh, God pushing him to do evil. No, it is just taking away the restraints so that left to himself, he will, he will do what he can do and has the potential to do, which is what he did. He, he ran behind uh, with the Egyptian army and he chased the Israelites and uh, they, they all were drowned in the Red Sea. So I hope that explains that. Yes, Raymond, thank you. Yeah. Any other questions? I'm okay. pausing so much because I don't want anybody to misunderstand this concept in the New Testament because this concept is presented as a comfort to believers and as a guarantee for evangelism and not for any kind of panic. So I want you all to understand that. Yes, somebody was speaking up. Yeah, uh, Caleb here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's another question here. So uh, in Acts, uh, uh, Peter says that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and... Uh, you will uh, be saved, you and your family. You and your family. So now what about um, like 
like there could be if i mean there could be family may not be the elect right like the children or something like that uh caleb that's the exact point the point is we give the gospel call to everybody and it's a genuine honest gospel call to everyone no no not not like uh, no my uh, my question being uh, over there there is a clear promise that you and your household will be saved no the point there it is a it is a it is a general gospel call that peter is giving out that he would have given to anybody you know uh, peter said on the day of pentecost repent and be baptized in the name of the lord jesus christ what do we do they asked he said repent it's a gospel call uh, just like that peter is giving a gospel call and even when we give a gospel call we give the gospel call with the promise of the gospel that if you believe in the lord jesus christ you will be saved not just you your family your friends everybody in fact that is what we have learned as probably the one of the first few verses in our sunday school john 3:16 for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life it's a genuine gospel call and anybody who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life yeah all right atonement Um, did Christ die for the elect alone, or did Christ die for the whole world? Is usually the question that is raised. And uh, there is something called Reformed theology that takes certain verses, and they say that Christ died only for the elect. And uh, there are other views uh, that say that. Uh, Christ died for the whole world. So when we study the atonement, uh, Joanna, we can't get into any details here. We need to look at uh, three aspects of the atonement. One is the intent of the atonement. The second one is the extent of the atonement. The third one is the application of the atonement. And these three are important. The intent is why is god sending his son to die and to save whom the extent is the question there is for whom did christ die and the application is to whom is the atonement and its results applied so these are three questions that we need to answer when we study the atonement and i believe the new testament um, the new testament Uh, understanding of it and the new testament presentation of it is that christ died for the whole world um, he didn't die just for the elect or just for the church but he died for the whole world and um, so uh, his atonement is sufficient for the whole world and it is efficient for those who believe got the point yes yes he died for the whole world so that the atonement is sufficient for the whole world but it becomes effective for those who believe 
that is the elect. Okay. That is the application of the atonement. But if somebody asks you the question, did Christ die for the whole world? The answer is absolutely. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So to restrict the world to the just the elect world or to do some word gymnastics with it would be to do injustice to the word studies of the New Testament. I do not want to do that. I like how you put it because this is, I think, the same or similar way that Sujay had put it when I had a similar question. So I, I really like that. You know. Um, any other questions? Sujay, your name was raised. <laughs> any questions, Sujay? I sent a question earlier on WhatsApp regarding the... Hey, uh, WhatsApp is a little away from me, man. Tell me. Okay. No, uh... Oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, yesterday's thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, okay. I'll answer that. Yeah. What was the question, please? Uh, the question was regarding... Uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh -huh. Okay. So uh, I asked a hypothetical question. If Jesus uh, died and did not rise from the dead, uh, would we be justified? I'm basing that on, uh, I think it's in Romans 5, where Romans 4, sorry, where Paul says Christ died for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Yeah. Okay. In fact, uh, okay. Uh, it is a hypothetical question, but I'll anyway answer that from the New Testament understanding of it. Um, there is only one verse in the New Testament that connects our justification with, with uh, the resurrection. And that is the verse that he quoted in Romans 4. He was, uh, he was given over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. But when you look at the atonement per se, the death of Christ on the cross, everything that had to be accomplished for our salvation was accomplished in the death of Christ. You know, tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. It means the death of Christ has wrought salvation for us in every aspect. Now, what did the resurrection do? The, uh, the, re the resurrection guaranteed the work of the cross in the sense that the resurrection proved to the world in one sense that Christ and his claims were true because otherwise cursed is everybody who's hanged on a tree and uh, he was hanging under the curse of God, but God himself raised him from the dead, which means that he was not hanging on the cross for his own curse. He was paying for somebody else's curse. And so his claims are true, number one, Number two, he did not die in vain. His death does have effects on those who believe in him. So, in uh, so although the the hypothetical question should not be raised, where you say that Christ, you know, what if Christ does not raise from the dead? Such a possibility does not arise. Uh, he will rise from the dead, as was predicted in the Old Testament, and as is in keeping with the hypostatic union. Um, that's one thing. Second thing is. The New Testament also sees that uh, the atonement completely paid for our sins and achieved everything for our salvation. The resurrection guaranteed what was done on the cross. Also, the New Testament does also present the concept of bringing these two together, the atonement and the resurrection as one same concept as well. So there are three levels in which I would answer the question.
Suja, is that clear? Yep. Okay. Yes, is that Ruby? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you've covered this, but I just wanted to ask. Uh, in the verse which says that, you know, the without shedding of blood, there is, there no, is remission no remission of, of sins. Right. Yeah. So is it that, uh, why did Jesus have to shed all of his blood? He could have just, you know, uh, cut apart and shed little blood, right? Why yeah, yeah, was yeah. it necessary for him to shed his whole blood? Okay. Good question. Uh, very good question, in fact. Um, in Leviticus 17.11, incidentally, uh, that was my quiet time passage for yesterday. Uh, good you asked the question. <laughs> okay, so uh, Leviticus 17.11 says this. It says, uh, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for the sake of atonement. Okay, so the life of the flesh is in the blood, and God is saying that the reason why he gave blood is for the sake of atonement. And in the Old Testament concept, you have, whenever an animal was brought to the altar for offerings, for a sacrifice, you don't have the animal just being cut in one little place where a couple of drops of blood were shed, but you have the concept of that animal dying a gory death with the blood being spilled out. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood and he is given that blood for the sake of atonement. It is a blood that makes atonement. So the concept of a gory death where the blood is spilled out completely and not just a couple of drops from your, from your uh, body is a pervasive concept in the Old Testament. And that is exactly what was what came to the antitype Christ and was fulfilled in the person of Christ, where he suffered and he spilled his blood for us on the cross, not just a couple of drops, but he died a gory death in keeping with the tradition and in keeping with the law of God. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Any more questions on this? Abhijit, uh, I'm sure you have a couple of questions in your mind. Um, we'll talk later. Sorry? We'll talk later. We'll talk later, okay. Okay, let me see people who haven't asked a question about. Elena, any questions? No, I mean, no, no, I agree with you. Like we've been having these discussions at home anyway. So um, yeah, I think you just helped to formulate my thoughts on that. All right, praise God. Um, uh, Danny, Danny boy, any questions? No. You got everything? Yes, thank I'm you. I'm sure you will, yeah. Um, Caleb had questions, John had questions. John, uncle, any questions? Um, Saul uh, was instigated by by spirit to do wrong. Sorry, sorry, Saul was? Was instigated by a bad spirit to do wrong, to kill David. Okay. And uh, David uh, uh, sang the harp. Yes, 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 yes. And he was saved many times, right? Saved as in the spirit left him. Spirit left him. Why, yes. why, 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 why was that? 
uh, <laughs> okay, that gets into a completely different concept again. Um, the good and the bad. Uh, uncle, uh, um, I would like to answer this when we do uh, the doctrine of demons. Okay. Uh, probably okay. next week we can get to this because it is going into a completely different topic. Right. You need to understand how evil spirits work as well. You know, uh, okay. How God is sovereign over them as well. So uh, it takes okay. about 10 minutes for me to explain. So I don't want to get into that. But next okay. week, we'll get into that in detail. Is that okay? Okay, okay, fine, fine. Yeah. Fine. Um, on that point, uh, on that point, uh, Saul, uh, before he was Paul, okay, that's all. Uh, was he elected before he became Paul as such? Which Saul are you talking about? Are you talking about Saul that uncle mentioned or Saul who became Paul in the New Testament? Yeah, Saul in the New Testament. Saul in the New Testament. Of course, he was chosen before uh, the foundation of the world and that's why he became a believer. Okay. Okay. Um, I have a question, Aman. Yes, Seth. Okay, so the elect's names will be in the book of life or every... Yes, yes, absolutely. Those whose names are in the book of life. Okay, they are the elect. They are the elect. Okay. One last question. Can a non-elect person ever accept the gospel? Can a non-elect person ever accept the gospel? The answer theologically would be no. Um, not because he is non-elect. Uh, is what the New Testament says, but because he rejects Christ in a, uh, in a state of being dead in transgressions and sins. Oh. Okay. Okay. Uh, here is a, okay. Here's a straw man that is usually put up, Abhi. The straw man is, um, See, these two things don't exist in the New Testament, okay? Here's a man who is part of the non-elect and who's wanting to come to Christ, and yet God is not saving him because he's part of the non-elect. Such a thing does not exist in the New Testament. On the other hand, we don't have, we don't have another person in the New Testament who is part of the elect and does not want to come to Christ and uh, does not will to come to Christ, and yet God against his will is drawing him into the kingdom because he is part of the elect. These two concepts are straw men. They don't exist in the New Testament. What the New Testament says is that those who are elect place their, out of their volition, place their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God draws them into the kingdom. So there's both God's sovereignty and human responsibility in that. Did you get the point? Yeah, I did. Okay. Um, let me move on to other people who haven't asked questions. Rojit, anything? Uh, about the predestination, it's pretty much clear. Yeah. Sorry? Uh, about the predestination, it's pretty much clear. But okay. other okay. questions, I would ask Rojit. Okay. Uh, Murli? This is my knowledge very like... Uh, Huge things actually. Yeah. Sorry, can, Mandy, I, I can you repeat that, please? No, my knowledge will be huge things actually. This, uh, like uh, election, non election, free definition. Okay, 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 fine, no problem. Okay, so I will like uh, slowly first understand. Okay, sure, sure. Yeah, 
good so then like my mind will be like uh, recollect the questions yeah no problem we yeah uh rovina no no it's fine you understood everything yeah okay um ruby asked questions seth asked sheetal asked and sujay did okay all right if uh i i just i just uh spend a little more time on this because this is a concept that uh you know a lot of people have a confusion about and there's a concept that a lot of people misunderstand all the new testament clearly presents it so i just wanted to spend some time on this and uh um so we will close the session with prayer now if we don't have any more questions uh but i think i'll send out a new schedule i'll talk to sam and since the lockdown has been extended uh we can continue for a while the doctrine of salvation and then we will move on to other things um so uh but uh i'm not sure why there are just 14 participants here um do you think a different time will work better for other people honestly raven it depends okay sometimes we have a office call at a certain hour you can't really no i understand tell. that i understand that's what i'm asking okay. at least if uh, you know there are 60 people who signed up for this yeah. and at least if half of them turn up it will be good as what i'm saying um yeah but the calls like the timings vary day to day yeah 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 i i realize that so i, I spoke to a few people yesterday yeah. uh, on the phone and they said the same thing yeah they really want to come and they love to come but they're all listening to the recordings is what they said keep it at 8 am 8 am is this sujay no no that's abhijit okay i won't be awake at 8 am <laughs> sorry dani okay <laughs> yeah but i mean that's a good timing as well okay let's do something i'll we'll probably send out a google form and we'll see what is what is convenient for everyone What about afternoons? About three uh, thirty or something. We have inductive at that time. I think Robin is Robin is taking. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm saying if, they, if there's no clash, without a clash, I'm saying towards the afternoon. Hey, Raven Junior, I think it's also uh, because now people are getting used to work from home. There is a mm-hmm. lot more work that is given during office timings. Right, right, right. Uh, I understand. sometimes the evenings we can we can alternate it out or something also so that yeah yeah okay i'll i'll do that i'll just take a look at the calendar uh and then i'll uh, we'll probably formulate a schedule okay uh anyway it's just that you know i will teach even if there are 10 people but it's just that um since many have signed up i thought a lot more people will be benefited but when i talk to people on the phone uh, they are very interested and uh, they in fact wanted to Uh, come here it's just that because of the clash they are unable to come all right if there are no more questions we'll close in prayer um what is the next one um, yeah we'll go to gospel call and effectual calling okay um i will okay let me request um rovina would you close in prayer yeah uh Lord and Father, thank you so much for this time that you've given unto us. Uh, we thank you, Lord Father, for helping us to understand the Lord Father. The uh, and speaking through um, Raven the Chasen, Lord Father, 
And Father, we pray that you may able to um, that you may enable us to keep whatever we've heard today in our hearts, Lord Father, to remember it. And we thank you so much for the comfort that you've given us, Lord Father, that you have elected us, Lord Father, and you foreknew us even before uh, the formation of this world, Lord Father. Thank you so much for your love. And we commit everything into your mighty hands. We ask all these things in the most precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, guys. We will. I'll send out the schedule for uh, the further classes. Thank you, Raven. Yeah. Thanks, Raven. Thank you, Raven. Bye. 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 Bye.